Good morning, church. My name is Jason Park, and today we will be reading from today's passage. It is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Please follow along in your own Bible or on the screen. Again, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, ESV version. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is the reading of the word. Suffering, as she shared very poetically and beautifully, is an invitation that often we are blind to. Um, We've talked a lot about how God can see our pain, how God can see our suffering, how God empathizes with us, but what I want to do today, and, and according to the text that we just read, is to explore, well, after all of that, what does suffering do to you? What is the transformation that comes out on the other side? How is it that someone like Christy, how is it that we can sing at the same time that you are sovereign, and that whatever the enemy meant for evil, you will turn for good? Um, suffering, every, every world religion, every way of life has a way to deal with it. Christianity is none, no different. It has its own wisdom and own guidance, as we just read in Paul, but it is a little different from what the world tells us. Um, Tim Keller puts it this way. Um, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Uh, contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. Contrary to karma, suffering is often unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. There is a purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. What I want to show us is that end part of what Keller is getting at, what Paul, I think, is prescribing to us, that suffering, when faced with God, as he sees your pain, as he empathizes with you, actually will turn you stronger. Now, I'm not saying that this is a, a, you know, a blanket statement on all suffering, that we should chase suffering at all, because scripture, it remains silent on why we suffer. Um, I wish we could have more time in the book of Job, but the end of, end of book of Job, God answers Job, and he gives no explanation of why he suffers. But throughout scripture, and especially in this text, it does give us hope on what God is doing with suffering. That God has a purpose. That suffering is is an invitation to strength, to character, and to ultimately hope. Um, I don't have much time, so I'm going to do my best to consolidate this. But I just want to focus on three sentences that Paul gives us in this text. That suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character will ultimately produce hope. Well, the first is this, suffering produces endurance. How can something as painful as we just heard, um, as painful as a loss of a loved one, as painful as not being able to carry a child, as painful as losing a parent or a child, how can that be used by God for our own good? Paul, uh, he loves using athletic running metaphors. You know, I I would say if he was alive today, he'd be like a CrossFit junkie. I think he was very fit. And the word he uses here is endurance, and it's the word that implies uh, the strength to run a long-distance marathon, right? 26 point something miles, whatever that may be. 
And if you've uh, ran a marathon, you'll probably know this. You cannot train for that overnight, right? You can, you can do a lot of things overnight. You can, you can make a sermon overnight, not that this is uh, made overnight, right? Or you can make a report overnight. You can do a lot of things overnight, but a marathon's a little bit different. You need endurance. Your lungs need time to grow in strength. You can't just wake up one day and be like, I'm going to run the marathon. You will not be able to do that. And what Paul is saying is this, that the suffering that we endure, that all of us endure, and, and, and look, there's a spectrum of it, but wherever you lie, right now you are suffering something. Maybe it's a chronic disease. Maybe it's a loss of something. Maybe it's a hidden suffering that you cannot share. But as you suffer, what Paul tells, tells us the first step of transformation is that it is producing a long-lasting strength for the soul. Now, before we get into what that is, Paul is saying something between the lines. What Paul is saying is, is if suffering produces endurance, comfort, in contrast, produces weakness. Right? And look, I want to be very careful here. I don't think trying to live a comfortable life is unholy. I don't think it's wrong. I, I, you know, that, that's, a, that's a righteous pursuit. But I hope as Christians, we are, un, we are fully aware that when we're comfortable, it is in comfort where the soul gradually withers to weakness. You see, we, we live in a society that is obsessed with seeking comfort, right? Even the idea of the suburb. What, what was that idea? It was to escape the sufferings of the city to live in comfort. Now, I, I would guess 80% of us live in suburbs. I'm not saying to move back to cities or anything like that. But I want us to be aware that when we're comfortable, we're becoming weaker. You know, uh, I had sciatica uh, the week COVID started. If you don't know sciatica, it's nerve pain um, down your sciatic nerve, which I found out goes all the way down from your back to your leg, right? And it's like, it, it basically is like, it, you just feel immobile. You can't move. And luckily it happened on the week, literally the week COVID started, and I remember right before the last therapy session I saw was my therapist told me at Kaiser, my PT was like, hey, everything in your mind is going to tell you rest, stay in bed, because if you move, it's going to be painful. And the one thing he said to me is, I'm going to give you like 10 exercises. I don't care what you do, but just do something because rest is death. But he was saying, your mind says, don't suffer. But when you put your body in that, it becomes actually weaker, right? And if you suffer back pain or any muscle pain, you'll know that. Your therapist is basically saying, stay active. So look, we know that physiologically, but nothing changes spiritually. Meaning this, that suffering, that pain often is what strengthens and hardens the soul. We see this. I mean, we've preached about this the last couple of weeks, We've seen it from Abraham to Joseph to Moses and even to Apostle Paul here. God is inviting his people to strength when we suffer. And the problem is, if you're like me, many of us have become addicted to comfort. It's like a drug. And I often say this, comfort is like steroids to the soul. It makes you feel strong for a moment and very quickly. Right? But it is not the path to long-lasting strength. Have you seen Barry Bonds recently? Um, if you did, sorry, this is a huge segue. Barry Bonds, huge steroid user. He's really strong in his day. Right? You could tell his neck was all big. But the minute he gets off steroids, he looks like a stick today. Right? Barry Bonds, if you're listening, no, no disrespect. You're great. Right? 
But that's what comfort is. It's a steroid. It's, it simulates strength when it does not give you endurance. And because of that, you realize, if you're like me, many of us maximize and try and use all of our time to chase comfort. What do you think about when you have nothing to think about, right? Usually it's seeking comfort. If, if, I, if, if my mind is wandering, as it always does, because I'm pretty sure I have ADHD or something, but when my mind is suffer, uh, you know, just doing that, I don't think about suffering. I don't think about my past. I think about two things. I think about which Bay Area sports team is doing well, which is the Niners, or golf. That's it. That's all I think about. Why? Because those two things give me the most comfort. But I realize as I'm thinking and trying to use all of my effort and time to maximize that, my soul is becoming weaker. And it's a funny thing that so much of our modern, secular, Western life is dominated by how can we get comfortable when if you look at your own life, when you look at your own testimony, I'm not, forget if you're Christian or not. If you, if you know what a life map is, you get a piece of paper, you draw a line, and you put these post-its, like red, bad, blue, good, okay? And what you'll realize is this, the events that have shaped you the events that have strengthened you, the events that have made you who you are today, most of them are wrapped up in events of suffering. That's how we're formed through the fires. So if that's true, what do we do? With this point, let me give very two quick practical tips. Uh, the first is this. Look, I'm not saying to chase suffering, but I do think God is calling us to take risks. And I want to be very careful. I'm not saying go to Vegas. I'm not saying to bed or to do something uh, irresponsible. What I'm saying is to take holy risks, meaning uh, everything is, is, is a weighed opportunity, especially at church, right? So if you see, you know, there are always people in your life that kind of come about, and there's a choice of do I invest in this relationship or do I just kind of coast and keep a distance, right? If, if you're introverted, I'm, I'm probably striking a nerve here because my wife is, and she always tells me this, okay? And this is the thing. In the Bay Area, especially here at True North, I know this. To invest in a relationship is risk, because it can make you suffer, because people suck, right? You know that. Because friendships can be betrayed, right? That person could move. That person could be problematic. That person could gossip about you if you share certain things. But this is the thing. Although there is a risk for suffering, what we often do is if we live suffering proof in our lives, we will not grow. God will not invite us to strength. Take holy risks. And secondly, if this is all true, if suffering produces endurance, you have to learn to process your past sufferings. I've talked about this a lot. But oftentimes when you hear about suffering, you're only concerned about your present and future sufferings. Like, what am I going through right now? What will I go through then? And, and God used that. But if you, and many of us, especially if you're Asian American, but especially if you're just human, there are, there are tons of suffering hidden in your soul. And I realize as people, the best thing that we do is not that we just hide our weaknesses from other people. The best thing that we do and the thing that we're excellent at is hiding the suffering to ourselves. We keep it locked away in this dark corner. We don't process it, we don't think about it, we don't even touch it. And because of that, there is no opportunity to transform that suffering into strength. Suffering produces endurance. But from there, what's the next step? Paul says this, 
as suffering produces endurance, then endurance produces character. This newfound strength that suffering gives you produces what Paul says is character. Now, to use that word to define it a little bit better than the Greek, I think the better way to describe it is it's better translated almost a testing, um, the approval of yourself. What Paul is trying to get at is this, that this newfound strength that suffering kind of molds you into as your soul kind of gains spiritual muscle is that you then figure out who you really are. You then figure out who you really are. Like, you can say a lot of things, but one of my old mentors would say this, conviction without character means absolutely nothing. Conviction without character means absolutely nothing, meaning you can say all you want, but until you go through it, it doesn't mean anything. And look, if you're like me, uh, if you look back like 10, 15 years, and you, like, who did you think you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago? And you would laugh, right? If you're 30 and over and you log on to Facebook, uh, every day it does this horrible thing where it tells you memories, uh, memories from today, 10 years ago, this status update, 15 years ago, this photo, 12 years ago, your ex-girlfriend posted this on your wall, right? And the first thing I do when I log on to Facebook is I delete all of those posts, right? Why? Because there's a shame to it, but also, not even a shame, but you're like, oh, you almost laugh. Because you look back to who you thought you were, and you're like, that, was, that is totally not who I am. What changed? You got older. What does that mean? You've suffered more. You see, suffering, the strength that it gives you is that it rewires who you are. You don't know what holds you together until you're being pulled apart. You don't know what stitches you together until you're being pulled to the brim. That's just a physical fact. So if you're, I've talked about this before, maybe a couple years ago, but if you remember physics class, there was an assignment that most of us did where the teacher gave you a bunch of toothpicks or wooden little um, you know, pieces, and you had to make a bridge out of all the formulas and things that they taught you. And one thing you realized is that no matter how aesthetically pleasing a bridge is, it don't mean nothing. Right? You've got to test it. So what you would always do is you would build a bridge and then in front of the class, they would hang kind of a scale and they would stack book after book after book. And in that test, what it revealed is no matter how aesthetically pleasing a bridge looks, all that matters is, is what is holding it together. And if you remember, it was often the ugliest bridges that would win. Why? Because it did not matter how it looked, it mattered how it was bonded together. This is what suffering does. It's like a scalpel, and it cuts through your ego. It cuts through all the superficial, and it tells you this is who you really are. Paul Tillich puts it this way. Um, People who endure suffering are taken beneath the routines of life and find they are not who they believed themselves to be. Suffering pushes past the superficial defenses of the ego and truly gets to your self. And as Christy just talked about, when you suffer, the greatest thing it reveals about yourself and your character are your limitations. See, so much of the Western life that we live tells you this lie, that you have no limitations, that you can be who you want to be, right? And I remember, like, I remember when I was growing up in like second grade, Miss Johnson was like, Eugene, what do you want to be? And I was like, I want to be an NFL running back. You know what she told me? She's like, you go do it. She wanted me to die, right? 
because there is no way I could do that. But this is the thing, We're, we grow up in this environment that tells you that you have no limitations. And the quest to being truly you is to break through all that. When the scripture tells you, no, the quest to being truly fully human is to realize your limitations and then to live out of that. Suffering allows you to gain a more realistic human sense of your limitations and deep suffering you're forced to confront the reality that you actually have no control over your life. That you could plan it all out, that you can 401k it all out, that you can invest it all out. But one crash, one day, one bad whatever it may be can change all of that and you have zero control. And it's in that that you find the freedom to find out who you really are. Again, I don't want to quote Christy too much, but she put it really well. It's in the pit of darkness that God forms you to form the convictions that really matter. This happens biblically. When, when we, we, we already preached about this, but when Abraham brings Isaac to where he's supposed to sacrifice him and to lose and to suffer, it is in that moment that God rearranges who Abraham is. And it's in that moment Abraham realizes the failures he's committed. It's in the pit of an Egyptian jail cell, suffering for two years that Joseph is formed to be the savior of his family. Even Apostle Paul, if you don't know the story about Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter, he's on the road to Damascus and Jesus encounters him. And it's such a blinding light that he's blind for three days and three nights, completely suffering in a state of complete helplessness. And it's in that pit of blindness and suffering that Paul becomes the most influential New Testament writer that we have. Suffering allows you to uncover who God truly made you to be. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And from that, well, what's the last step Paul gives us? He says this, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. A hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The final, you know, Charizard step of suffering is that you see God for the ultimate hope that you need in your life. This newfound sense of strength and self, what it does is that it gives you a sobering reality, a clarity with your spiritual eyes to see the world for what it actually is to be. See, what Paul says is this, look, we, we all hope in life. We put our hope in, et cetera. You know, I, we talk like your vocation, money, your family, your marriage, whatever it may be. But what Paul says is this, all those things you hope in can easily put you to shame. Even your marriages can put you to shame because they are people. If, if you put your hope in your children, they can put you to shame because they will not live up to your expectations. If you put your hope in your vocation, that can change within a market day. Those things can all put you to shame. But what Paul says is this, when you suffer and you suffer with God, you will find a hope that does not put you to shame. What he's basically saying is you'll find a hope that will actually last. Well, what is that? You see, our souls, we attain a profound clarity in pain and suffering and with that sight, we can finally see life for what it is. And more importantly, we see God for who he is. It's often those who suffer 
that truly see God not as an accessory to their life, but as their savior to their life. Um, you know, Jesus has this saying in Matthew 5, 8, where in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the pure in heart. So he's saying, blessed are those who are holy. Blessed are those who strive after God. Why? Like you would think, oh, for God will love you. Oh, for God will accept you. For God will approve of you. No. Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure, for they shall see God. What Jesus is saying is this. So often we get it mixed up. We want to be holy to feel better about ourselves. We want to feel holy to be accepted to God. What Jesus is saying is, no, you strive for holiness so that you can see God for who he really is. What Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying is this. Um, There's a saying uh, that the early church fathers had of what they called the dark night of the soul. I'm not saying Batman dark night, like uh, dark uh, nighttime, like that type of night, okay? The dark night of the soul. And what these early church fathers would say is this, that every believer needs to have a moment where they're completely in suffering and darkness. And they even go further. They would say that God allows you to enter into that for your own good. That's what the dark night of the soul is like. That sounds very, you know, painful and evil. Well, why does he do that? Well, they would say, these early church fathers, is this. God, when he, because one thing that's clear in scripture is that God is in control. So whether he lets you know why suffering happens, the one thing that is clear is he is in control. So then what, what, why is it that God allows certain trials and tribulations to enter into our, our lives? Well, the question that these early church fathers often ask is this. Do I worship God or do I worship my own experience of who he is? Do I love God out of self-interest or do I love God for God's own sake? God purposely will often take away certain things in our life that will make us suffer so that we can see him as the hope that we need in our lives. Not as an accessory, not as a way to get what we want, not as a way to do things that we want to do, but so that we could see God as the sovereign ruler and creator and the person worthy of our worship. You know, the disciples uh, in their life, when they're following Jesus, they probably expect, oh, we found our savior. And if you take kind of a psychoanalysis of each disciple, each of them seek Jesus for their own benefit. Some of them want Jesus to come and militarily overthrow the government. Some of them come to Jesus and say, hey, we want power. That's what we want. We want influence. But when Jesus goes to the cross, all of those dreams are shattered. It's a dark night of the soul for the disciples. They're like, dude, our hero is dead. And they suffer. And and, and it's from those conversion, what they would call the second conversion, This idea that suffering produces this true test of, hey, I know you believe in God, but why do you love God? Do you love God for what he gives you, for who he is? And it's in that these disciples finally see Jesus as their ultimate hope. What am I all saying? Suffering, it allows our faith to flourish even when the feelings, emotions, and comforts will be taken away. And it makes our faith pure, that God is our hope, that we love God, not for what he gives me, but for who he is. I want to stress this again. Alan Jones puts it this way. He talks about suffering and what it does. He writes this. We learn how to love another for his or her own sake 
and not from self-interest or for our own personal satisfaction when we suffer. The purpose is not to frighten us or render us immobile or impotent. The light we receive as we weep enables us to move on because we are not only made aware of our poverty before God, we're also aware of how much we are loved and of the lengths to which God is willing to go because he loves us. Let me, let me get as practical as possible to burn this image in your head. Um, I hate, I, I like detest to the bottom of my soul when I see teenagers showing PDA. And I'll tell you why. Um, sorry, this is a dark turn. Um, I was in Great America a couple of uh, nights ago because uh, we have our season pass and it was Christmas. So I remember I'm standing in line with Eli, my son, and there's this like 15-year-old, 16-year-old like couple just like, just, you know, going at it. Like literally right in front of me, like tongue, saliva on the ground. My son's just like staring, right? And I'm just like, oh, it's, yeah, right? Now, why, why does it bother me so much? Right? One, it's like, come on, man. Like, it's like, you know, I have children here. But two, that love is so fake. It's so fake. And you know this because you experienced it. Like, you remember teenage love? You didn't love that person in front of you that you were sticking your tongue down their throat, whatever it may be. You didn't love, you love what they made you feel. You love the rush. You love the adrenaline. You love that special feeling that for the first time, oh, I can touch someone of the other gender. You love that. You didn't love them, right? And if you marry your teenage sweetheart, great, right? That's, that's amazing, <laughs> right? More credit to you. On the flip side, when I see PDA from couples that look like they're 70, 80, or 90, it's much different. There is a, a deep admiration I have for that. Because one, they're not like sticking their tongues down their throat, right? They might physically not be able to do that. But two, you realize through that small whole handing of, holding of hands, that small peck on the cheek, that man, that love has suffered. That love has gone through a lot. That love is pure because that love is not based off emotion. It's not based off what that spouse is giving them. It's truly based upon the sake of the spouse. And that love can only come through years and decades of what? Of joy? Of happiness? No. Of fights, of brings of divorce, of suffering. That's when that love becomes pure. You see, um, you know, that, that type of PDA, it's not flashy. It's not this emotional high. It's not sexy, but it's deeper. It's much more intimate. It's, much, it's a deeper level of love that you see. In that same way, I will, let's be honest, so many of us here, especially if you consider yourself growing up in the church, you're living off fumes of what I call retreat energy love. And you know what a retreat energy love is? It's like when you're 12, you're at a retreat, and you know, it's late at night, and you raise your hands, and you feel something, and you're like, oh, I believe and love God, right? And I was like that. But you know what? I wasn't feeling God. I was just tired, right? And the food sucked. And there was a girl that I liked next to me. And it was really like, you know, this energetic, communal passion that I felt. That's probably what I felt. I'm not saying that's bad. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's a natural stage of love. But I would say this, many of us are living off fumes off of that. That you're here more out of nostalgia than out of true love. And what God is inviting us to is, can we have a deeper covenant love that is not marked by emotions, 
that is not marked by what God gives us, but marked by who God is. Suffering allows our souls to truly seek God as our ultimate hope, as our ultimate love, just as Christ sought after us. When you think about Christ going to the cross, he did not suffer for the crowds. He did not suffer for the fame. Like if you think about Jesus, he was really famous. He was an influencer. He, was, he had all that. He had two million Instagrams, you know, whatever. And he was, he was viral. But that did not take him to the cross. The suffering he endured was out of love, not for what we gave him as his people, but out of our sinful selves for our own sakes. In that same way, that is what God is inviting us to do with our suffering, to see it as an invitation, a painful one, albeit that, but an invitation to strength, to character, and ultimately a deeper hope, a deeper love for God that we chase after him, not for what he gives us, but for who he is. So with that, I hope, look, as we just heard through scripture, through testimony, all of us are suffering. I know that to be true. But what I hope that we can do with the time that we have, with, with whatever energy you can muster, is to see it as an invitation, that God is inviting you to be transformed. Uh, let's pray.